0: Hey folks, and welcome to episode 177 of the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motz, and I'm assistant to Peter Lighthart, the president of Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our series on the life of Jacob with our scholar-in-residence, James Jordan. In this talk, titled Rejected by the Land of Promise, Jordan's going to be talking about Abraham and Isaac and some of the theology of famines in the land. He's also going to discuss the theme of changing places in Genesis. And finally, he's going to focus on how Isaac is carrying forward the Abrahamic project. We really hope that you enjoy and are sharpened by this time of teaching. And as always, thank you so much for listening.
1: Chapter 26, I think we'll probably spend the entire hour on the first verse, and just look at it somewhat thematically. Genesis 26, verse 1, Seth. Now there was a famine in the land, aside from the former famine that had been in the days of Abraham, or as our Bible says, Avraham. So Yitzchak went down to Abimelech, king of the Philistines, to Gerar. There's a lot in here for us to talk about and to consider if you never have before. The first is, you know, if you read Genesis, and I know all of you have, and all of you have been in Bible studies on Genesis, you notice that there seem to be an awful lot of famines in the land. What is the problem here? What is this land called later on in the Bible? Yeah, a land that flows with milk and honey. (laughs) How come there are all these famines in the land? Here in the days of Genesis, we don't read about famines in the land in the days of kings or judges. There are all kinds of other problems. But it doesn't say now there was a famine in the land, with one exception, and that's the book of Ruth. And that was just really a famine in one place. In the house of bread, there was a famine, Bethlehem. So, by the way, we know that Ruth is dealing with something fairly specific thematically. But what is this? How come there are all these famines in the land in the book of Genesis? Well, let's consider it. And I'll tell you why. This is the most cursed place of land on the entire surface of the planet. And it stays cursed until Joshua. It's under a curse. the patriarchs live here, but they're constantly being driven out. I don't know if you realize how much of Genesis takes place not in the land. Let's just survey it and I'll show you how this land that's under a curse is itself in need of redemption and is constantly driving the patriarchs out. And we'll just make a survey. We go back to start with to chapter 9, verse 25, where the curse is put. And you know this. Ham, the father of Canaan, seeks to expose his father's nakedness and sees the robe. Here in this story, And Shem and Japheth take the cloak or robe And they uphold it on their shoulders. Very symbolic action of taking this robe on their two shoulders and walking backwards. They uphold their father's authority and cover their father's nakedness, thus refusing what Ham apparently is tempting them to do, which is to take the robe of authority for themselves. Well, Noah wakes up and he puts a curse on one of Ham's children. Verse 25, he said, Damned be Canaan. <laughs> There's a translation for you. Servant of servants, may he be to his brothers. Now, Ham had three other children about whom nothing is said. It's Canaan, the son of Ham, who apparently is, I mean, we just kind of have to read between the lines and say, God is fair, Noah is fair. If the curse goes from Ham to Canaan, it's because Canaan is the one son of Ham who is like his father, Ham. And so just as Noah's son rebelled against him, so Canaan will be a rebellious people. And the Canaanites will continue to be in rebellion against God, and only a few of them will be saved. Of course, in the book of Joshua, there is one group, the Gibeonites, who are saved of the people of Canaan. And of course, in the days of Abraham, Abraham gets many converts among the Canaanites at that time, Eshcol and Mamre and these other guys, but That's before the iniquity of the Canaanites is full. But the Canaanites are under a curse and the land that they live in then becomes a place where the general curse on the human race that comes with Adam has been intensified. And so we notice as we begin to come into this land that it just does not cooperate with the righteous. In chapter 12, Yahweh says to Abraham, go forth and come into this land so... Abraham went and he takes Lot with him and they come in verse 5 to the land of Canaan. And when they came to the land of Canaan, they went to Shechem to the oak of Mori, verse 6. Now the Canaanite was then in the land. So we're very strongly emphasized here in Genesis 12 that this is the land of Canaan where Canaan went. So it was called after his name. And the Canaanites, descendants of Canaan, are living in that place. This is Canaan's place. Now based on what we've seen in Genesis this is a place that's under a special curse. Damn Ned B. Canaan, Fox's translation says. This is hell. This is under a curse. We're so used to seeing the Bible in shards and snatches and Sunday school leaflets and all, I don't think we realize this connection here. And when Abraham goes into this land of Canaan, we're supposed to already know this is a place that's under a special curse. And you can't isolate this from what's gone before. We've been told that Canaan, Canaanites, that's a cursed place. Abraham goes into that place. And he starts building altars. This translation says slaughter site, which is a nice rendering of the term. And maybe someday we'll talk about that too. But then he starts kind of mapping out this land of Canaan. This is interesting. I know I've mentioned it before, but it never hurts to mention it again. In verse 6 of chapter 12, Avram passed through the land as far as the place of Shechem, the Oak of Moreh, or Oak of Revelation. So he goes to Shechem. In verse 7, he built an altar or slaughter site there. And then he goes to the mountain country east of Bethel, el house of God, and he spread his tent toward the sea and Ai toward the east, and he built a slaughter site or altar to Yahweh. And then he goes on to the Negev. Now, what he's doing is he's kind of mapping out the land here and building altars in all of the significant places. Later on, when the land is conquered, they're going to go to Bethel and Ai. They're going to go to Shechem. These are all the significant central core places. And Abraham has this kind of proto-conquest of the land by putting altars there, in invading hell, invading the most cursed place on earth, and putting the witness of God right there in that place. But then in verse 10, there was a famine in the land. So I thought this was supposed to be a great place that God had promised to Abraham. As soon as he gets in there... There's a famine, so he has to go down to Egypt, and while he's there, Pharaoh attacks him, but God vindicates him, and he comes out with much spoil, and he comes up out of Egypt back into the land, heavily laden with livestock and silver and gold, and he goes back to Bethel and Ai and rebuilds the altar there, but then we read, the land is still not cooperating, verses 5 and 6 of chapter 13, now also Lot, who had gone with Avram, As sheep and oxen and tents and the land could not support them to settle together. For their property was so great they were not able to settle together. When you look at all the people who came out of Egypt later on into this land of milk and honey and it was able to support them. But now these are two sizable sheikdoms I guess. And there are other people living there but it's not supporting them. Now there would have been better ways to work this out than for Lot to separate from Abraham. That's Lot's big mistake. The beginning of the whole series of big mistakes on Lot's part. But the land is not supporting them. It's not cooperating. It's trying to throw them off. It doesn't want them there. Then when we get to chapter 14, we find it in this land. And as soon as Lot separates, then we get these promises. In chapter 13, verse 14, Yahweh said to Avram after Lot, Lift up your eyes and see where you are, north to the Negev, to the east, to the sea. I'm going to give you all this land in the future. Verse 18, He moves to Mamre near Hebron, Hebron, and builds an altar or slaughter site. (laughs) So another altar is built. Another conquest is taking place in this most cursed of places, the land of Canaan. Well, now what happens? Father, there's this big war all over the place. Five kings against four kings. And they capture Lot and they take him away and Abraham has to run out and get him. There's war and tribulation in the land. It's still a place where You wouldn't want to be here. The description here, we look at what's gone on in Yugoslavia for the last seven or eight years. You wouldn't want to be there. You wouldn't want to be there during the Croatian-Serbian war. You wouldn't want to be there during the Slovenian-Serbian war. You wouldn't want to be there during the Bosnian conflict. And you wouldn't want to be there now. In the Kosovo conflict. You wouldn't want to be there with armies roaming all over the place and people being dislocated and everything else. That's what's happening in Genesis 14. You don't want to be in this land. This is not a good place to be. It's hell. Well, it turns out there's a guy named Malchizedek who is there. King of Shalem, we're told. So there are some good people there. And there is witness here in hell. But it's not where you want to be. But then in chapter 15... We had the first of a series of distinctive resurrection promises. After these events, after all the things we've seen so far, the land throws Abraham out into Egypt. He comes back. It won't cooperate with him and Lot. Lot separates from him. There's this war all over the place. It's obvious that the land doesn't want Abraham there, and God had told Abraham it was going to be his land. After these events, Yahweh's word came to Abram in a vision saying, Be not afraid, Avram." I am a delivering shield to you. Your reward is exceeding great. And Avram said, My Lord Yahweh, what would you give me? For I am going to be accursed. And the son domestic of my house is Damascan Eliezer. <laughs> this means one born in his house, a homeborn slave, an adopted son. Son domestic is a good translation. An adopted son. Not going to really have a son. And Abraham said further, here, to me you've not given any seed. Here, the son of my house must be my heir. But behold, Yahweh's word came to him saying, this one shall not be heir to you rather than one that goes out from your own body. He shall be heir to you. And he brought him outside and says, pray look toward the heavens and enumerate the stars. We would prefer that to count them up. It's not count them up, but analyze them. Pray look toward the heavens and analyze the stars. Can you analyze them? And he said to him, That's what your seed will be like. What are we looking at here? Well, the patriarchs of old, their lifespans were the same as various astronomical cycles. And possibly even the signs of the zodiac were known at this point. There are various ways of communication in the heavens. Abram could look up and say his seed, the specific person born from his loins, is going to fulfill the things that are located in the heavens. What is this thing that's located in the heavens? Well, primarily, it's the band of the zodiac with the twelve constellations, which is the rainbow from Noah. And that Noahic revelation, which is to all men according to Psalm 19, the rainbow in the sky, translates toward these heavenly signs that move toward this one band. The planets move in this band according to the synodical periods, And the patriarchs, before and after the flood, their lifespans were like those periods. The stars, the ruling stars that move among the constellations are in charge of them. If his seed is going to be like that, then he will be like one of those rulers. If his seed is like the sun, the supreme ruler in that rainbow band, his seed will be like these 12 symbols. I believe that's what's involved here. And we don't really know exactly how they analyze it in the ancient world. Because we're given the much more certain scriptures. Psalm 19 says, It's nice for the heavens to declare the glory of God, but how much better is the law when you have it written down? We really don't know anymore exactly how they did this stuff. But we know they did it. Even the Magi did it when they came to visit Jesus. At his birth, they had analyzed the sky and knew how to interpret it. We only have little shards and shreds of that left. And a lot of it's been... Misinterpreted, And I don't want to talk about that except to mention that's probably what this passage means. Now, it says he trusted in Yahweh and he deemed it as righteous merit on his part. Let's pass that translation by. And he said to him, I am Yahweh who brought you out of the earth of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit it. But he said, My Lord Yahweh, by what shall I know I will inherit it? See, now we got to the real problem here. <laughs> the first problem was, hey, I don't have any kids, so all of this is meaningless. The second problem is, hey, this land doesn't want me. And how do I know I'm going to inherit it? Because I'm estranged from this land. And then he tells him to get animals that are three years old, which tells me Abraham has been in the land for three years. For three years, it's been under a curse. So we've got to have an animal that's lived for those three years and put him to death, and that will put to death this problem. And he tells him to lay the animals apart into two sections. So each animal is cut in half, and then there's a turtle dove and a fledgling, it says here, a pigeon. So all these animals are divided in half, and this establishes what the five sacrificial animals are. Remember, it says Noah took up every clean animal and burned it as a sacrifice to God. He sacrificed a gazelle and a deer. At this point in the Abrahamic covenant, the sacrificial animals were reduced to five, And these are the ones that are used forever after by the Israelites. The Israelites could only sacrifice ox, goat, sheep, dove, and pigeon. They're divided in half. And what these animals represent is a dead and divided relationship between Abraham and the land. So human beings are made of soil and animals are made of soil. And so using an animal, an animal can represent a human being and can represent the soil and Abraham is estranged from the land, he's cut off from the land, his relationship with the land is dead, it's cursed. And then the Shekinah Spirit of God moves between these parts and says, I will bring this all back together again and restore them. This happens in the sacrificial system every time an animal is killed. Every time you kill an animal, you have to cut it in half. If it's a bird, you have to pull the head off. And then you put it in the fire of God where it's pulled back together again and ascends to heaven. It's dead and resurrected. What this means is resurrection. These things are all dead. They're torn in half. That's the curse. In fact, after they're torn in half, the birds come down to try to get them. But Abraham drives the birds away so that they won't be eaten before they can be resurrected. God comes between them. Symbolically, They're brought back to life again. And now what he's saying to Abraham is, now you will be sealed to the land. It will be your land. It will be one with you. And when you sin, the land will not do good. When you're righteous, the land will prosper. Because you will be sealed and you'll be one with the land. As undoing what God said to Adam. To Adam, God said, Cursed is the ground with reference to you. From now on, it won't cooperate with you. It'll throw thorns and thistles up in your face. You're estranged from the land. The land doesn't want you anymore. And we've already seen that. The problem in the land of Canaan is just intensified. The land of Canaan is the worst place for this, where the land doesn't want you because you're righteous. Now he says that's totally going to change 400 years from now. (laughs) It isn't going to change yet, because the land is still not going to cooperate with Abraham. But he's given the promise that it will. And then what happens is after this change takes place, that's promised here that God will resurrect man and tie him back to the world so the world is now friendly to man. Then the land will bring a famine only when you're sinful, and it will bless you when you're righteous. That doesn't happen yet. It's a promised resurrection of the land, not one that takes place right away. But if we continue reading, interesting things happen. We're still living in the cursed land of Canaan. Abram gets involved with Hagar and has Ishmael. God decides to save Ishmael, but we notice that the son who really wasn't supposed to come into being is born in the land. And then in chapter 17, while he is in the land, We have circumcision. So we have another picture of death and resurrection, which is circumcision. Well, actually, that's primarily a picture of death. We have the covenant sacrifice in chapter 15. We have circumcision in chapter 17, where you take the human body and you cut it in half. Big half and a little half, but you're still cutting it in half. And you're cutting off the sinful part, and you're doing this in the place where the sense of shame is located. And that goes back to Adam and Eve and their sense of shame. That's another picture of a death or cutting off that has to happen in order for Abraham to be tied to the land and to receive the promise. And as soon as that happens, another promise is given. You're going to have a son. I'm going to bless Ishmael, but you're also, you're going to have a son. And live in the land. Well, then what happens? In chapter 18, God comes and promises that the sun's going to come next year. In chapter 19, Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed. And the smoke rises like a furnace and fouls the land so bad that Abraham has to leave. Now, once again, Abraham is being driven out of the land. The sinfulness of the Canaanites is such that God destroys the city, pollutes the land, pollutes the air. And Abraham has to leave and go down to Gerar. Which is just where Isaac is going in our study next week, as we read today. Abraham goes down into Gerar, so he is outside the land. And is what becomes interesting. It's while he's outside the land that Isaac is born. Ishmael is born inside the land, and he's sent out. Isaac is born outside the land and brought in. This changing place theme in Genesis is seen here. Remember, Esau and Jacob changed places. It's also seen here. There's a changing of place that takes place with Ishmael and Isaac. Isaac is born outside the land in Gentile territory in Gerar. And you see, what's happening is, while Abraham is inside the land, he's experiencing all this tribulation and distress. He goes outside the land, and yeah, there's some tribulation and distress, but when he was outside the land in Egypt, what happened? Well, there was some distress, but then he got rich. (laughs) Now he goes to Gerar, he goes outside the land, and there's a little bit of distress, but what happens? He has the son, and he gets all these gifts from Abimelech, and he prospers. As long as he's not in that damned, uh, cursed land of Canaan, he's doing great. I don't think I'd want to go back to Canaan. And Abraham really never does. He doesn't do it very much. He pretty much stays out of the land from here on. In chapter 22, he makes a trip back into the land to sacrifice Isaac. He goes from Gerar, which is outside the land, back into the land to Mount Moriah to Calvary to do the sacrifice of Isaac thing. And where we have another promise, another, now we have a human sacrifice, another sacrifice thing, which is another promise, and another promise comes connected to it. yes, someday you'll have this land, (laughs) but not today. God will bless you, see, they will possess the gates of your enemies and so forth. But not today. So he goes back. He goes back to Gerar outside the land where things are nice. When Sarah dies, he goes back into the land to buy a burial plot for Sarah, which also is a promise that someday you will have the land. But not now. The only time you have the land is when you're dead. And in chapter 24, when he wants a wife for Isaac... He sends outside the land to get a wife for Isaac. This land of promise is just that. It's a land that's under a curse that's promised in the future. It doesn't cooperate. And actually, Abraham only lives in that land for a short time. For the first 75 years of his life, he's not there. He comes in. He spends about a year there, and he goes down to Egypt and comes back. Then, about the time Isaac is born, when he's 100 years old, he's in Gerar, And pretty much never goes back. So he's in the promised land for about 23, 24 years, and that's it. All right, the center of his life. Then we come to Isaac. Isaac is living sort of in the land at bar which is Ishmael's place originally. So he's in the land. And then what happens? There's a famine. Chapter 26, verse 1, and he's driven out of the land. While he's outside the land, as we'll see next week, he gets real rich. He digs these wells, he's prospered, and he yields a hundredfold. All this great stuff happens. And then the people in Gerar really don't want him there, so he moves to Beersheba, and Beersheba is right on the boundary. Beersheba is a boundary between the land and outside the land. I don't really want to be in this horrible place. And what happens? Jacob is sent outside the land to get a wife. He didn't get a wife. When he's inside, he goes outside. And what does he get? He gets wives, kids, tremendous amount of wealth while he's outside the land. Then he comes back in the land, and what happens? His sons massacre a bunch of people in Shechem. And Jacob says, we'll get to this eventually, chapter 34, you've made me stink in the nostrils of these people, and now I have to leave. So he has to go out. Again, he becomes a wanderer. In chapter 35, Jacob is just kind of wandering from place to place like Cain. He can't settle down anywhere. Nobody likes him. And the words out, you and your clan, you made a covenant with these people in Shechem and then you massacred them all. Everywhere Jacob goes, the people say, we don't want you here. Move on. The land is not a place where he wants to be. But he still lives in that general area, wandering here and there. Chapter 37, verse 1 tells us that he's living in the land of Canaan. And it becomes significant, you see, in Genesis when we're told that somebody's in the land of Canaan because that is not a happy place. Chapter 37, verse 1, Jacob settled in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. And then we read about Joseph and Joseph's brothers killing him. At least they tell Jacob that they've killed him or that he's been killed. And Joseph is driven out. Joseph is driven out of the land. Jacob's hopes and dreams are either killed or driven out. In chapter 38, we see Judah is still living in the land, but Judah gets involved in sins with Canaanite women and almost wrecks his life. And then, of course, Joseph is outside the land. He's blessed. All his initial trouble and difficulty, but then he winds up as Pharaoh's right-hand man. He gets a nice, cute Egyptian wife and... He gets to be put in charge of everything and he saves the Gentiles and then he saves the Israelites. And at the end of the book, we're outside the land. So throughout Genesis, Canaan is a cursed place that's constantly driving the patriarchs out. And this statement in chapter 26, verse 1, that there was a famine and that Isaac was driven out to the land of Gerar, that's just part of it. This land is not a land that flows with milk and honey. It's a land that's not cooperating at all. And it stays that way until the book of Joshua. When we're called out of Egypt, God makes a covenant with us, and then we're sent into the promised land to do ethnic cleansing and drive the Canaanites out. So it's no longer the land of Canaan. And remember that after that happens, or at the climax of that event, they were supposed to stand on Mount Ebel and Mount Gerizim and read the covenant out loud and yell amen so that the covenant is sounded out over the land. And that puts the whole land under a covenant. Then resurrection of the land which is prophesied in the events we've been looking at takes place in Joshua with the cutting off of the Canaanites and the establishment of the covenant there. In fact, the first thing that happens in Joshua is the people circumcise themselves at Fourskin Hill to cut off their own iniquity. And that self-circumcision then is translated into the elimination of the Canaanites from the land. So that's all prophesied in Genesis, but it hadn't happened yet. And that, I hope, gives you some context for this theme of being driven out of the land that happens so often in Genesis. Maybe there's one other thing we can do here since we're just kind of introducing this. Continuing in verse 1 of chapter 26... It says, there was a famine in the land aside from the former famine, which there had been in the days of Avraham, Abraham. This passage, chapter 26, all except the last two verses, which belong in chapter 27, has a big stress on Abraham. The word Abraham occurs eight times in this passage, and it only occurs 15 times in the whole rest of Genesis 27 to 50. There's a big stress on Abraham here. As Isaac goes into Gerar, as a famine just like in the days of Abraham. God appears to him and says, I swore this thing to Abraham. Abraham obeyed me. Implication that you should. He digs wells that Abraham had dug. The word Abraham keeps showing up. And of course, we're not surprised at that. I mean, why wouldn't it? At the same time, it's not a name that occurs a whole lot of other places. And when you start to think about it and compare in contrast with the rest of Genesis, it seems to be significant. Why is Abraham stressed here? Well, I think there are a couple of reasons. One, Isaac as the son of Abraham is carrying forward the covenant that God made with Abraham and what it means. And second of all, Isaac as the son of Abraham is duplicating Abraham's experience, but with a difference. Now, just to think about that, Remember that the book of Acts is a duplication of the gospel of Luke. The things that happen in Acts have already happened in Luke, but with a difference. So that the things that happen to Jesus, Jesus comes, he does these things, and he goes on uh, preaching trips, and then he goes on makes a journey to Jerusalem. And he's put on trial by three different courts, and he experiences a death and resurrection. Then the same thing happens to Paul. Paul has three preaching tours. Paul moves toward Jerusalem. Paul is put on trial by the same group of people. Paul undergoes a death and resurrection in the sea. Goes down to the sea and comes back out at the end of the book. But it's different. The master, the servant, duplicates the experience of the master. Moses is driven out of Egypt and he spends 40 years in the wilderness. Then he comes back and leads Israel out of Egypt and they spend 40 years in the wilderness. All of these things are patterns And Isaac, as the son of Abraham, duplicates the experiences of Abraham, particularly in Gerar, in the way this passage is written to show us this, but with some significant differences that indicate forward motion in history. And so those contrasts between Abraham's experience and Isaac's experience are important. We can learn something from them. So let's look at the first thing I mentioned. One is that Isaac, as the son of Abraham, is carrying forward the Abrahamic project. First of all, in Gerar, as I mentioned, Abraham goes to Gerar in chapter 20. And in chapter 21, while he's in Gerar, he has a son. He has his son there in this foreign land. And the next thing that happens, we have the birth of a son in chapter 22. We have the sacrifice and resurrection of the son. And then we get a bride for the son. Of course, Isaac is not really put death as a substitute. But the theme is the same. What's being revealed typologically is the same. That Jesus is born, he's sacrificed and resurrected. He gets a bride. Then we get to Isaac. If we just continue this through, Isaac starts to produce water for everybody in chapter 26. And then he experiences prosperity. Now I think that's in a sequence because of the way these passages are tied together. We're explicitly reminded, it's as if the passage said, look, start reading with Abraham's experience in Gerar and look at what happens. What happens? The son is born, he's killed and resurrected, he gets a bride, he starts to provide water, which is the Holy Spirit, Pentecost. And then there is prosperity that results to him, first to him and his people, and then the Gentiles come and join it. So that sequence of events is important. And is part of a larger sequence of events that we see if we take the contour of Genesis as a whole. Mark this for one point, this sequence of events. If we take a somewhat broader sweep, we notice that with Abraham... There's a big stress on altars. I showed you that as we were reading through. This translation says slaughter site, which is a literal translation of misbeot, which means place where a slaughter takes place. A religious sacrificial slaughter takes place. Altar is the English word for that, but altar has become so. And we don't know exactly what it means anymore. So that it helps to look at his translation here and see that that would have been the original idea. With Abraham, we get altars. With Isaac, this whole passage stresses wells. So we're moving from sacrifice to Pentecost. We're moving from a whole series of death and resurrection places to the outflow of water. That stress in Isaac is a progression here which prophesies typologically a progression that we find comes to its fullness in Jesus. Then if we look at Jacob... There's almost nothing about altars and almost nothing about wells. The stress with Jacob is he gets a bride. In fact, he gets a fourfold bride. And he gets Israel. All the tribes. That's set up then. With Joseph, who comes next, what's the stress? Any altars in the Joseph story? Nope. Any wells in the Joseph story? Nope. Joseph gets a bride and some sons, but what's the stress in the Joseph story? Well, dreams and prophecies, but I'm looking for something else. I'll just give it Gentiles. I think in terms of this progression, death and resurrection, the sending of the Holy Spirit, formation of Israel, gospel to the Gentiles, to the Jew first and then to the Gentile, as the New Testament puts it. There's a progression there. And we see it if we start taking a very broad view of some of the symbolic And the emphases and the symbols that are used in these stories. So that is one way in which Isaac, as the son of Abraham, follows through or carries forward the things that were there in the Abraham narrative. Abraham starts it up, Isaac is the son, and then now Isaac is the one who brings water, new life and prosperity to himself and to the world. And then that's part of a larger picture that's carried forth in Genesis as a whole. The second way this passage relates to Abraham, Isaac and Abraham, is that there's a duplication of the events. What are the events? Well, Abraham goes down into Gerar. He tells him that Sarah is his sister. Doesn't tell him that she is also his wife. Just that he's a sister. Abimelech takes her into his harem. Before he has a chance to do anything, God sends a bunch of miraculous curses on him one in particular, none of the women in the place can get pregnant. And God appears to him in the night and says, you're dead if you don't change your ways. Stop doing this. So Abimelech comes out and he tries to blame Abraham for this. If somebody does you wrong and is caught, they blame you. And that's what happens repeatedly in these stories. Abimelech tries to blame Abraham. But that doesn't work and he showers Abraham with gifts and Abraham dwells in the land and then Eventually, Abimelech and his commander of his army, Phicol, come in a form of covenant with Abraham. Well, in chapter 26 here, pretty much exactly the same thing happens. Isaac is driven down by a famine into Gerar. He tells them that Rebekah is his sister, which is true. doesn't tell them that she's his wife, which they don't really need to know. Abimelech doesn't do anything to him on this occasion, but when Abimelech finds out, that Rebecca is Isaac's wife, he tries to blame Isaac for something that might have happened. He says, hey, one of the men might have raped her and then it would have been your fault for bringing judgment on us. That's an interesting charge. It's amazing how the commentators take his side in this. I'll point that out to you next week maybe. Gordon Winham says, oh yeah, with all Isaac's fault, if one of the men had raped his wife and brought judgment on these people. I'm thinking, are you crazy or what? No, Abimelech tries to put the blame on him. He doesn't shower Isaac with any gifts, but Isaac does remain there and becomes very prosperous. And then Abimelech and Phicol come and want to make a covenant with him. Now, this is a duplicate story, but there are two important contrasts. One, in the Abraham story, the Abimelech of Abraham's day finds out that Abraham is married to Sarah as a result of miracles. Miraculous judgments come. God appears to him in a dream. But in this story, Abimelech finds out by looking out the window and seeing Isaac and Rebecca obviously engaged in some type of marital activity that you wouldn't engage in with your sister. When we get there, I'll show you, it says Isaac was Isaacing with his wife Rebecca, And it's not really clear what that means. It doesn't need to be, it's just a general statement that Abimelech says, hey, you guys must be married, so whatever it was they were involved in, He sees and he knows they're not just brother and sister anymore. There's no miracle here. He just sees it naturally. Then the blessings come to Abraham as gifts from Abimelech, but the blessings come to Isaac as a result of Isaac's work. He's not given anything. He digs these wells and he prospers. Now what we have is a movement from the miraculous to the ordinary, from the divine to the human, from childhood to maturity. When we're children, everything's provided for us. But when we grow up, we're supposed to provide for ourselves. If you look in the Bible as a whole, you'll find that in the early days of the Bible, God is doing all these miracles like the plagues on Egypt to get people out. Later on, as they grow up, he does fewer and fewer miracles because they're supposed to be mature enough to handle things themselves. Till you get to the end of the Old Testament, there aren't any miracles anymore. Same thing happens in the book of Acts. Initially, there are all these fantastic miracles. Even if your shadow of an apostle falls on somebody, he's healed. By the end of the book of Acts, Paul is sick. There's nothing he can do about it. The miracles have gone away because you've grown up. When you're a little baby, they take care of you. When you grow up, you take care of yourself. There's nothing unspiritual about that. It's a matter of maturity. And the story of Isaac, it's a generation later, and there's a movement toward maturity that's taking place here. Not that Isaac was as an individual more mature than Abraham. I think he wasn't, almost certainly but that in terms of history and in terms of the typology and what's being revealed here, there's a movement that way. If you were an ancient Israelite and you read this, you are supposed to learn that from it. Don't expect God to wear back and do a bunch of miracles for you every time you're in a fix, because as time goes along, you're supposed to learn more and be able to handle things more for yourself. Well, I think that's about it for today. The only other thing I was going to point out, Today is it? word Abimelech here. This is the same name, Melech means my father is a king. It's not a personal name, it's a throne name. The king of Gerar that Abraham interacted with was also called Abimelech, but that was way back, many years earlier. would have been a different man. But this is like Pharaoh. All the kings of Egypt are called Pharaohs. Does anybody remember what Pharaoh means? It means great house. You're in the house, in his house. The same thing Artaxerxes means. And these are throne names, they're not personal names. So Abimelech, Ben-Hadad, all the kings of Syria were called the son of Hadad. Hadad was their god, so forth. And then, uh, as we've mentioned before numerous times, the Philistines are considered Egyptians, and so we're moving back into the borders of Egypt at this point, but not all the way into it. Well, those are some larger background things that I thought we'd do today. And next week we'll go back into a more